0: and welcome to City Breaks London, Episode 2, the first proper episode, if you will, in our new series on London. I'm Marion Jones, and I've been hosting City Breaks for a little over two years now. If you're new to us, then it might be worth saying that there is a back catalogue on our website, www.citybreaks.co.uk, seven other cities, a varying number of episodes for each, The longest series so far has been Paris, I think that's 22 episodes. Series like those on Seville and Toulouse a bit shorter, but lots to explore if you're interested in cities and culture and the history behind the monuments that you might visit when you go to them. But coming back to today, where to start when talking about London? There are lots of places you could start, pictures that you probably got in your mind that say London to Londoners and Brits and foreigners alike. Tower Bridge, perhaps, or Westminster and Big Ben. Maybe the soldiers outside Buckingham Palace. But I think if you ask Londoners themselves, where is it that for them absolutely represents their city more than anywhere else, they may well say St Paul's. That has quite a lot to do with the photograph you may have seen, taken in December 1940, when all around it was in ruins, because of the bombing, but one newspaper photographer managed to capture an image of St Paul's standing aloft, defiant really, saying, nope, London's going to survive this. Its importance comes too from the weight of history, just knowing how many important events have taken place here, all sorts of things from, oh I don't know, the wedding of Catherine of Aragon, to let's say the funeral of Winston Churchill, and just knowing that this is the place where the nation gathers or representatives of the nation anyway, for all kinds of events of remembrance or national mourning. But even that doesn't explain it fully. What about the side of the art and the architecture and the beauty of the place? Here's Prince Charles on that very topic. St Paul's is not just a symbol and a mausoleum for national heroes. It is also a temple which glorifies God through the inspired expression of man's craftsmanship and art. And tucked into that description as well, of course, of course, the idea that it's a church, a working church, with centuries of prayer and worship behind it. So, to start the episode, just a very, very brief history to point out that what you're looking at here when you go to visit St Paul's today is, of course, not the first cathedral that's been built on this site. It is, in fact, the fifth. The very first one was built by the Bishop Meletus, sent to London as a missionary from Rome. Unfortunately, that was wooden, so it burnt down. It was rebuilt, only to be destroyed by the Vikings in 962, rebuilt again, and then destroyed by fire. That was in 1087. And the fourth version was built by the Normans. You may already know that the Normans took no half-measures when they were building things, and here they put up what was the longest, tallest Christian church in the entire world. It was, in fact, longer and taller than the current version. Later generations enlarged it, restored it. There were periods when it fell out of favour somewhat, during the Civil War, for example, when I believe it was used as stables. And, in fact, gradually it did lose some of its luster. But when the monarchy was restored, Charles II came back as king in 1660. He decided to do something about it. He threw out the traders who'd grown rather used to selling their wares inside and set about planning to have this gorgeous building restored. He was in talks with Christopher Wren. They were trying to think what they wanted to do when suddenly along came the great fire in 1666, which destroyed the building. So Christopher Wren's task got somewhat bigger. Now he had to design and build a complete new church, and this one. The one which you see today was completed in 1710. From that point on, the building which had burnt down in the fire became known as Old St Paul's, as opposed to the new one, which is the one that you see today. And I wanted to spend just a minute or two having a look at some of the factors which were important to Old St Paul's. And one of the most famous parts of the whole complex was in fact outside the church itself, a little area in the churchyard known as St Paul's Cross, a place where Londoners got used to gathering, to hear sermons, or in fact to hear the news of the day. There'd be thousands of them on occasions, sometimes drawn because they knew something really big had happened. For example, Queen Elizabeth herself was there, her visit rounding off several days of thanksgiving for the victory of the English forces over the Spanish Armada. On other occasions, news from the government was given out, perhaps to alert everybody to the fact that Feasts in the Guildhall were being cancelled because of the plague. And on the subject of the plague, it was one of the topics that some of the preachers took pains to try and explain in biblical terms. One, for example, tried to explain that the plague was all the people's fault because they were sinful. Quote, The cause of plagues is sin. If you look to it well, and the cause of sin are plagues. Therefore, the cause of plagues are plagues. Many Londoners, including often the royal family, enjoyed plays, which were noisily and often rather borderly put on, often in the open air, but preachers were often not so keen. St Paul's in those days was, of course, a place of worship, but it was also a more general sort of meeting place, often somewhere where some very unchristian activities took place. Here's Lisa Picard, author of Elizabeth's London, on this topic. Quote, It was packed with men doing business deals, prostitutes touting for customers, servants looking for jobs, innocent sightseers and criminals. You should avoid a courtesy man or a confidence trickster and a cheater or a fingerer, well-dressed and persuasive, who pick on innocent young gentlemen which are sent to London to study the laws and lure them into crooked card games. You might be accosted by a whipjack with a sad story of shipwreck Or a demand of a glimmer, begging because her home was burned down and she was destitute, or so she said. And as for the worship which took place here in the 16th and 17th centuries, that changed too at various points. In 1521, for example, so pre-Reformation, pre-Henry VIII and all things he did to the church, the Pope sent along a messenger in the shape of the Bishop of Rochester to tell everybody what the Pope commanded should be done about an upstart under the name of Martinus Eleutherius, or Martin Luther, as we would call him. The nub of the Pope's message was that one should take no notice of Martin Luther because, quote, he erred sore and spake against the holy faith. The Pope went on the message, denounced them accursed, which kept any of his books, and the upshot of this speech was that people came to the churchyard with the said books and burnt them. But only 15 years later, in 1536, the Pope's authority is being denied at this very same spot. This time it's the Bishop of Durham doing the talking, and when he came to the Pope, he said the following, He, contrary to his oath, hath usurped his power and authority over all Christendom. Not long after that came the message that people should pray for the universal church of all Christendom and especially for the prosperous estate of our sovereign and emperor king henry viii being the only supreme head of this realm of england so the pope's authority very much coming into question and by the 1650s it was decided that not only did people not want the pope's authority over them they didn't want the cross either why not because quote it was called a cross and a cross was obstinately irreclaimably Popish, The way that services were conducted in St Paul's also underwent massive change. Before the Reformation, of course, they were Catholic. Described on St Paul's own website in the following way, The veneration of many saints, shrines, reliquaries, chapels, the observance of saints' feast days, masses for the dead, said in chantry chapels, a wooden cross known as the rood and a chapel devoted to the Virgin. Among the changes that came in after the Reformation would be the fact that the choir would then sing in English, not in Latin, and that the Book of Common Prayer would be used. To mention just one of the many historic events which took place in this cathedral, let's go back to the year 1501, which was the date of the wedding of Catherine of Aragon to Prince Arthur, eldest son of Henry the Seventh, A huge day of celebration, attended by crowds of many thousands of people both inside and outside the church, all, of course, unaware that in fact Arthur wouldn't live all that much longer and that Catherine would have a second wedding, a much longer marriage, to Arthur's younger brother Henry, he who would eventually be Henry the Eighth. Anyway, on this day none of that was known, and the crowds who gathered were amazed to see Catherine arriving at the church, dressed in the Spanish way and wearing a garment which until then had never been seen in England, although it became popular later on, and that was the Farthingale. There were great hoops under her skirt, which was pushed out to form a wide circle around her. Or, as a contemporary who was present put it, Quote, Beneath their waists, the ladies wore certain round hoops, bearing out their gowns from their bodies after their country's manner. Catherine also wore a very long white silk veil, bordered in gold with pearls and precious stones to decorate, the very full skirt just described, a tight bodice and then voluminous sleeves. The ceremony was endlessly long, all the politics was done first, so various agreements between England and Spain were read out, and then the bishops took over, eighteen in total, all wearing their mitres, to conduct the service. Catherine and Arthur, also dressed in white satin, made their vows. They were made to walk hand in hand around the church so that all should see them, and then to come forward to the high altar where Mass would be said, and when it was finally over, the feasting and the drinking could begin. There was a fountain dispensing wine to all the public, and there was a huge banquet held, followed by a full two weeks of all sorts of celebrating, joustings and more banquets and masked balls and all sorts. So I mention that just as a glimpse of this sort of thing, happened in Old St Paul's. It had become a centre of celebration and national history, but all of that looked to come to an end in September 1666, when the Great Fire of London broke out. There were four whole days and nights of burning, two-thirds of London was destroyed, including an estimated 13,000 houses and 87 parish churches, including, sadly, Old St Paul's. The diarist John Evelyn was there, and he wrote in some detail about what he found when he went along to see how old St Paul's had fared. It was, he said, now a sad ruin, and one of the things which struck him was the sheer ferocity of the heat. It was astonishing to see what immense stones the heat had in a manner calcined, so as all the ornaments Columns, friezes, capitals, and projectors of massy Portland stone flew off, even to the very roof, where a sheet of lead covering no less than six acres by measure being totally melted, the ruins of the vaulted roof falling break into St. Faith's. St. Faith's was the chapel next door, so the heat had been such that the stones and the roof had been destroyed, and as John Evelyn said, thus lay in ashes that most venerable church one of the ancientest pieces of early piety in the Christian world. Charles II, who was on the English throne at the time, had been thinking about restoring St Paul's, but now he had to ask Christopher Wren to design a whole new church. Wren was rather well equipped for this task, having already had experience as an architect, an astronomer, a scientist, a mathematician. He'd been a founder member of the Royal Society. He was a man of great faith and he was very proud of London. He took the task very seriously. Lots of plans were made and talked over and rejected and amended. King Charles was obviously impressed, because he appointed Wren to be his Surveyor-General of the King's Works, a post for which he was paid £200 a year and given official quarters in the Palace of Whitehall. The task couldn't be rushed. It was nine years until the foundation stone was laid in 1675, But there was a general feeling that the project was going to go really well. And in fact, there was an auspicious moment right at the beginning when one of the workmen was asked to bring along a stone, any old stone from the rubble, to mark a particular spot. And the one he chose turned out to have one Latin word written on it. I think it was from a gravestone. And it had the word resurgam, which is Latin for I will arise. And this was taken to be a sign that yes, a glorious new cathedral would indeed arise from the rubble of the old one. Christopher Wren had, in earlier years, been abroad. He'd studied in Florence and he'd visited Istanbul, so he was familiar with Florence's Duomo Cathedral and with the Hagia in Istanbul, both of which, as you may know, have glorious, uplifting domes, and he was determined that St Paul's was going to have one too. He designed it in three different layers, There was to be a smaller inner dome inside which could be painted but if the outside one was going to have any prominence on the London skyline it would have to be much bigger and then between the two there'd have to be a brick dome to give strength and support. Work continued and finally finally in the year 1708 on a day chosen because it was Christopher Wren's birthday the last stone was put in place and the cathedral was deemed to be finished. Much celebration Lots of people really admired it, and an elderly barrister known as James Wright, in fact, even wrote a poem about it, some of which went like this. How shall I fitly name this matchless pile? What equal epithet can fancy give? Glory of London, glory of the Isle, best of the best, double superlative. While all this was going on, Christopher Wren had, in fact, designed and overseen the building of scores of other churches in London also all to replace those which had burnt down, but I think it would be fair to say that he always had a special soft spot for St Paul's. He lived until he was 91, and in those last years he used to like to come and sit under the dome and just reflect. Fittingly, he's buried down in the crypt, you can visit his grave, on which there is a Latin inscription telling us that he lived non sibi, not for himself, sed bono publico, but for the public good. And then there's a last line, very often quoted, which reads like this. Lector. Reader. Si monumentum requiris. If you seek a monument, circumspece. Look around you. So yes, all around you is what Sir Christopher designed and had built. And when you go to visit, you are looking at his work, dating from the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th. And again, there are so many events of national importance we could talk about that have happened there. I've had to make a selection and to run through just a few, starting with 1789, when there was a thanksgiving service for the return to health of King George III. A service was held on St George's Day, when else? April the 23rd, a service of thanksgiving. One of the most momentous events of all, was the funeral of Admiral Lord Nelson in 1806. He'd been killed a few weeks earlier, at the end of 1805, at the Battle of Trafalgar, but he had died a hero because the French fleet had been defeated. He himself had requested that his body should be put in a coffin made from the mast of a French ship from one of his earlier victories, and this was duly done, and it was brought all the way to St Paul's so that the nation could remember him, and a service could be held of thanksgiving for the life of a man deemed to have saved England from such a major foreign threat. Thousands came to the cathedral and watched as his coffin was lowered down and laid to rest in the crypt of St Paul's. His is one of the most visited tombs in the entire cathedral, and he is remembered every year on the Sunday closest to Trafalgar Day when St Paul's holds a special sea service and wreaths are laid at his tomb. Nearly 50 years later, in 1852, the funeral was held for the Duke of Wellington, that other English hero who had delivered us from the French, and who was also deemed to deserve a funeral with full honours at St Paul's Cathedral. In fact, it was Queen Victoria herself who requested that this should happen. There was a funeral procession of 10,000 people, with Prince Albert at the head, accompanying Wellington's coffin, which was placed on a huge carriage of bronze and drawn by 12 horses. Inside St Paul's stands were put up so that 13,000 people could fit in. There was a simple burial service, the Church of England service, some very English music by Purcell, and he too was buried in the crypt of the cathedral. His tomb is in a simple sarcophagus made of Cornish granite, but the newspapers of the day made it clear what a huge event Wellington's funeral had been. The poet Tennyson dedicated a poem to him, commemorating him as the greatest Englishman. 10,000 copies were printed, costing a shilling each, and they sold out in a matter of days. There was a description of the funeral printed in the Illustrated London News. More than a 100 pages of print and engravings were published in the editions just after his funeral, and 2 million copies were sold. But even that momentous event was outdone by the Diamond Jubilee celebrations held for Queen Victoria in 1897. Again, a lot of this took place in the streets on the way to the cathedral. First, there were sailors and military bands and horses and troops from all over the British Empire, from Canada and Australia, Africa, Fiji, Hong Kong, and as the procession got near to St Paul's, the drama was heightened because the bells fell silent. The carriage with the Queen inside stopped outside. It had been decided that at her advanced age, actually I think she was 78, she was too elderly and or not fit enough to get out of the carriage, so she stopped outside and the whole thing was held in the road that loops round in front of the cathedral. There were, of course, lots of clerical people choir boys all the way up the steps to the cathedral lots of hymns and just before the queen's carriage was going to move off again at the end something rather strange happened and luckily the bishop of london wrote all about it so i can read it to you now Quote, the other carriages waited and when the hymn was over there was a pause of intolerable silence the archbishop of canterbury with splendid audacity and disregard of decorum interpreted what was in everyone's mind and cried out, three cheers for the Queen. Never were cheers given with such startling unanimity and precision. All the horses threw up their heads at the same moment and gave a little quiver of surprise. When the cheers were over, the band and chorus, by an irresistible impulse, burst into, God save the Queen. Do try and remember that when you're walking up the steps into the cathedral. A few years later, in 1913, There was drama of a completely different kind when a suffragette plot to blow up the bishop's throne in St Paul's was narrowly foiled. Fortunately, one of the cathedral staff found the bomb at the east end of the cathedral and the report in the paper, the Daily Gazette, about this read as follows. An enormous bomb with a clock and battery attachment was discovered under the bishop's throne at St Paul's Cathedral today. The dean conducted Evensong near the bishop's throne last evening but neither he nor the verger then noticed the package or heard the ticking. You might know that the suffragettes had planted various bombs in various parts of London and not even St Paul's was going to be spared. It was at St Paul's in 1918 that huge crowds gathered as peace was declared and in World War II as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode St Paul's also played an important role. In 1940, London was very badly hit night after night by bombs, but Winston Churchill himself had said that, at all costs, St Paul's must be saved. St Paul's watch was duly formed. Volunteers who took turns to keep watch on the observation posts on the roof, who practised fire drills with hoses, who had volunteer medical staff standing by. There were a number of near-misses, and then on the night of the 29th to the 30th of December, the unthinkable very nearly happened. Bombs dropped all around. Flames spread from one building to another around the churchyard, but, miraculously, the church itself was saved. A photographer from the Daily Mail building nearby, one Herbert Mason, caught the photograph that would come to define what London had suffered in the bombing and also the great good fortune, the miracle, if you will, By which the building itself had been saved. An onlooker described what happened as follows. Against the flames, Wren's famous dome of St. Paul's stood silhouetted and miraculously unscathed. Mason saw the light gleam on the golden cross above and, at the perfect instant, clicked the shutter. When the photo appeared in the Daily Mail on the 31st of December, the caption read War's greatest picture. St Paul's stands unharmed in the midst of the burning city. That photograph was published all around the free world and has been used countless times ever since. VE Day at the end of the war was marked, of course, with services at St Paul's. Nine services in total throughout the day attended in total by some 30,000 people. In 1965, when Winston Churchill died, it was, of course, at St Paul's, that his funeral would be held. A huge London-wide event, but centred right here on the cathedral. So there was a procession through the streets of London, a dispatch from the Tower of London when the coffin was taken down river to Waterloo, a military fly past, and for the first time during the service, television screens erected in St Paul's itself, so that the event could be broadcast to some 850 million people watching or listening around the world. There were readings, there were hymns which had been chosen by Churchill himself, He Who Would Valiant Be, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the National Anthem, of course, and the Last Post. The Dean who read the bidding prayer focused on Churchill as wartime leader and spoke of, a great man who has rendered memorable service to his country and to the cause of freedom, raised up in our days of desperate need to be a leader and inspirer of the nation. There was military precision for every moment of Churchill's funeral, but it's believed that actually the most poignant element of the whole lot was spontaneous. As the coffin was being taken down the Thames, the dockside cranes dipped their jibs, appearing to be paying homage to him, and making it seem as if the whole of London was recognising his greatness. It was at St. Paul's, 1982. That Prince Charles married Lady Diana Spencer. She had been pulled in a glass coach along the mall all the way to St. Paul's, where she got out, gave the world a first look at her dress, and climbed up the steps of the cathedral. Again, absolutely a national event, televised worldwide, and one which made an impression on so many people. Lady Colin Campbell, author of Diana in Private, a biography of the princess. Quotes what Princess Katerina of Yugoslavia had said about the reaction of the public to the wedding. She had been inside the cathedral and said, When Diana said, I do, or was it I will, the crowd let out a huge roar which washed over us like a great wave. It felt as if there were no walls separating us from them. It really was the most extraordinary thing and very affecting. Everyone was moved by the wonderful feeling of oneness which we all felt. There were thanksgiving services at St Paul's for both the Queen's Golden Jubilee and her Diamond Jubilee, and it was also here that crowds gathered in shock and in mourning after September the 11th, the terrorist attacks in New York, and after the 7-7 bombings in London, for which a service was also held. So all of these events, and the many, many more which I haven't had time or space to mention, all contribute to the idea that St Paul's really is the focus for the nation at moments of celebration or of mourning or of remembrance. And so just to finish, I want to give a quick roundup of some of the things you might want to look out for on a visit to St Paul's. First and foremost, the Dome. If you stand in the middle of the Cathedral, under the Dome, you're in the area which is used for worship, where you'll see the altar. There are three galleries, one inside, known as the Whispering Gallery, because if you whisper into the wall your words will be heard by someone standing on the opposite side of the gallery with their ear to the wall. And then there are two galleries outside, both of which you can visit, the Stone Gallery and, higher up, the Golden Gallery, the highest point that you can visit. I believe it's 500 and something steps to get up there, so only for hardy fit souls. So many memorial plaques and statues. If I listed a quarter of them, you'd stop listening ages before I finished, so I'm just going to say that you might want to look out for a little group of memorial plaques dedicated to various British artists, Turner and Constable and William Blake. The poets have got their corner at Westminster Abbey, the artists have theirs here. Of all the many, many statues, which ones would you look out for? Well, there are two for people I've already mentioned. There's one of Lord Admiral Nelson and a huge effigy in memory of the Duke of Wellington. One of the best-known statues is of the poet John Dunn, who preached here in St Paul's. Well, more precisely, in Old St Paul's. If you look carefully at the statue, you can still see burnt marks on it. And although it was damaged, it was one of the statues which did actually survive the Great Fire, which put an end to Old St Paul's. There's a statue of Samuel Johnson, too. And there's a relief showing Florence Nightingale, tending a wounded soldier other things you perhaps won't want to miss would include especially for american visitors the american memorial chapter built to commemorate the 28000 americans who were killed serving in the uk or on their way to the uk in world war 2 there's a very moving 500-page roll of honor listing every single name kept behind the high altar i would say you definitely want to go downstairs into the crypt where, of course, you can see Nelson's tomb and Wellington's tomb and, perhaps a good place to end your tour, the tomb of Sir Christopher Wren himself with its Latin inscription, reminding you that everything you see around you is a monument to him. Lector si monumentum requiris circumspece. Written, in fact, by his son. Very briefly, a few things you might want to notice on the outside of the building. At the front, There's a relief depicting the conversion of St Paul to Christianity and there's a statue of Queen Anne because she was the Queen reigning when St Paul's was completed. Up on the towers are two bells which are so well known that they actually have their own names. So that would be Great Tom, which strikes every hour and which also tolls when the Sovereign dies and Great Paul, a bell which is actually older than this version of the cathedral. If you walk round the churchyard, you'll find embedded in the paving stones a floor plan of Old St Paul's and the current version, superimposed, proving that Old St Paul's was indeed the bigger of the two. There's a plaque to mark the place where the St Paul's cross stood and in the same spot, a gilded statue of St Paul. You could definitely spend a day looking round St Paul's. I'm guessing most people probably don't. But certainly you should allow a couple of hours if you want to have a good look at the inside and do some statue spotting and some artwork spotting. Go up to the Whispering Gallery, possibly outside a bit higher to the other two galleries, and down into the crypt. I think it is worth giving it some close attention, remembering all the while that St Paul's really is the church that Londoners claim as their own, but also a national church where so many things watched by so many of us have taken place. Perhaps the best way I can put it is, if you can remember watching on television the way Parisians flocked to Notre Dame when it was burning down, the horrified look on their faces, the realisation that for them Notre Dame really was Paris, and Paris without Notre Dame wouldn't be Paris at all, I think that pretty much sums up the feeling of Londoners particularly, and the Brits in general, for St Paul's. So that's it for today. I hope that you'll be able to listen next week too when I'm proposing to venture out from St Paul's to the surrounding streets which make up the City of London, the original part of the great metropolis that we know as London now in the 21st century. Lots more stories to tell, lots of interesting things to point you towards and I hope that you'll happen along again to hear some of those. Meanwhile though, thank you very much for listening and goodbye until next week.